Well, good morning. I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at a passage that, you know, I mean, I'm not a big sports guy, but I do know that there is a game that's going to happen today. Do we have any Chiefs fans in the room? Anybody for the other team? There are. Yes. Well, you know, I, I, I look at this passage and what comes to my mind is that uh, just before this big game, there's going to be some speeches delivered by coaches to tell their team, teams what they need to be doing. And I kind of look at this passage here because Jesus knows he is headed for a cross. And he rallies his disciples around him. And in fact, in, in Mark, Mark chapter 9, he gets them away from the crowd because he has some things he wants to tell them in private. It's go time. Game on. It's going to heat up. And they got to know a few things. And I think that that is the context in which we read these verses. Now, I'm just going to warn you that these verses... Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 42 to 50, they're probably not going to be verses that you're going to want to put on a t-shirt. Because in this text, he talks about, you know, if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye, pluck it out. If it causes you to sin, pluck it out. I mean, he's saying things like, and if you are, are, are going to cause the little one's to stumble and fall away, it's better for you to put a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the ocean and drowned. I mean, that doesn't sound like sweet, gentle Jesus, does it? That's because it's not. It's game day. He says, I gotta tell you stuff that's gonna matter in the end. And so I wanna ask you to just read with me verses 42 to 50 as we get started. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were drowned into the sea. If you're a parent, a grandparent, a brother, a sister, an uncle, or an aunt, pay attention how we live our lives. The influence that we have on the people around us matters to God, and he's watching and our lives all affect each other. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than have two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, there the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, he's, he's repeating the same thing. Have you noticed? And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast in hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it's lost its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And so what we can see here is that Jesus is delivering a very intense message that includes warnings. 
Now, his primary warning is this. No one ever gets away with sin. You can't manage sin. I mean, the whole ministry of Jesus was built around this truth that you actually love to sin, right? Do I get an amen? Careful, okay. But I know you do. And you can't deliver yourself from sin. So Jesus came and he said, come to me and I'll deliver you. I'll do what you can't do. Um, sin is so corrosive. We sometimes think that we enjoy sin until it starts to destroy us. I mean, God's goodwill and this truth and, and his grace and his mercy, I mean, what we don't deserve, will deliver us from the tyranny and the torture and the ultimate consequences of sin. Um, but he's warning us, we got a problem. There's stuff out there that's gonna destroy us. I don't know about you, but you know one thing I hate, I'm just gonna tell you. You know those decorative pillows that my wife buys for the bed? And they have like these tags on them? They're warning tags. I've actually never read the tag. Because my first assignment is cut those tags off. Because that's not nice to have that blue pillow on that white bedspread with the white tag. Okay. Somebody, you need to read what, I probably should go read what one of those tags say. But I've cut them all off now. It's too late. I have to go to the store. Um, but we, we, we are so warmed about everything in life nowadays. I, I read an article about um, warning for fools. You want to hear some warnings for fools? Okay. It, this may shock you, but on a Duraflame log, it reads, caution, risk of fire. Like that's the whole point of it, right? On the bottle of hair coloring, it says, do not use as ice cream topping. On a cardboard, you know, the cardboard sh sun shields for your car, there's a warning that says, do not drive with the sunshield in place. Um, on a portable stroller, the warning label says this, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. Now my favorite of all time is this one. On the Batman costume, warning, cape does not enable the user to fly. Okay, Warnings. There's a book written by a man by the name of uh, Michael Gigliari, and he chronicles the deaths of people since 19, 1870 at the Grand Canyon. Now, of course, we're not shocked that there would be mishaps at the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is this beautiful place in our country, 277 miles long, 18 miles wide. Uh, it attains uh, depths at some places of 6,000 feet. I mean, the, the temperature extremes are excessive. They go from 100 degrees down to very cold. Uh, it can lead to heat stroke and dehydration. 
Uh, in his report, he says, most of the deaths occur because of air crashes, people flying into the canyon. Some people died because floods uh, claimed the lives of river rafters. Others were despondent souls. But according to Giglieri, a number of people have gone over the edge and fallen to their death through their own carelessness. Specifically, they ignored posted warnings and confidently walked out to dangerous precipices. In 1992, a 38-year-old father jokingly tried to frighten his teenage daughter by leaping onto the guardrail and act, act like flailing around like he was about to fall, only he actually did fall. In 2012, an 18-year-old woman walking on the North Rim Trail decided to venture off the beaten path because she wanted to get a, a picture at Inspiration Point. Ignoring the warnings that were posted, she went out to the ledge and sat down on this ledge 1,500 feet above the deep canyon, and the rocks gave way, and she plummeted to her death. Okay, so what, what is Jesus saying he is not here recommending that we go cut off our limbs, but what he's doing, he, it's a literary device, an exaggerated metaphor, hyperbole. It is better for you to endure the unthinkable dismemberment because that, in fact, is better than the ravages that sin brings to a life. You know, we sometimes live our lives like, how close to the edge can I get? How close? And God's warning, and he says, hey, listen, you stay as far away from sin as you can. We actually have no idea the tragedy that we could get ourselves involved in because we tolerate sin and we think we can manage it. And then it begins to destroy us. Three things in this passage. The first one is this. First warning is this. It is better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and to be thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble. Pretty strong language. Um, we do influence the people around us. Little ones in this verse refers certainly to youth and children, but, you know, by extension, uh, or anyone who believes in me, you know, these disciples, they, they were going to be extremely influential because they were followers of Jesus, and everybody would watch them like a hawk. And he says, I want you to understand, it's better for people to pay attention to how our lives influence the people around us. You know, when you fall and go away, it affects me. I love you. When all of a sudden I don't see you anymore, my heart grieves. And ultimately I begin to wonder God, if they're falling away, is it going to happen to me? 
pay attention to how we live. Our lives matter to the people around us. That's the point of this right here. You know, I am so blessed because I, have par- I had parents who accepted Christ when they were young and gave their lives to serve God. And my, my, my parents, they weren't perfect. I'm just going to tell you right now. But they were committed. And I always knew my dad would try to do the right thing as best as he could and understood it. And there were times when we would, as a, as a family, in conversations with my dad, process the fact that somebody we looked up to, often another pastor or missionary, and then all of a sudden they did something unthinkable and they destroyed their family and everything got turned upside down and it was so grievous. And I remember my dad would always caution me and he would say, Eddie, don't ever think that you are incapable of doing something like that or worse because the moment you think that you're in trouble, you must understand that we are all capable and so we must be on our guard. And then my dad would quote this verse, Galatians 2.20, which was his favorite verse. I'm, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives w- within me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So my dad would bring me back to the grace of God. It's by the grace of God every day that we don't do something un- that is damaging to people and to ourselves. You know, my dad, I got to keep him until he was 86 years old, which is a beautiful thing. And um, every one of his children and grandchildren knew that what he wanted most for all of us was that we would know God and pursue him and follow him. That's the great legacy of my dad, for which I'm very grateful. Um, what is your life going to do? What kind of an influence are you going to have? Sometimes we don't even think about or realize the potential impact our lives can have. And so in a weak moment, we'll throw it all away. But if we would just realize that how we live not only will save us, but I mean, from from pain and suffering that God has warned us against, but it, it could also influence the generations that follow us. How blessed are we to have memories of parents and grandparents who followed the Lord. I don't know, there's just something steadying about that. Um, Jonathan Edwards lived in the 1600s in colonial America. He married his wife, Sarah, and they were blessed with 11 children, okay? He was a pastor, and he was really one of the leaders of what was the first great awakening in America. And um, she and... Jonathan Edwards partnered together in ministry to the point where she would, he would often discuss his sermons and matters of the church with his wife. And, and then when their kids got old enough, they would process life and things from the scripture and about the church with their kids. Um, and the effects of these two's, this couple's lives were so far reaching 
Someone actually did a study on the descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, and this is what they came up with. A hundred lawyers and a dean of a law school came from them. 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians, one of them was a dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors, mayors of large cities, three governors of states, three United States senators, one controller of the United States Treasury, and one vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, who also was the second president of what is now called Princeton University. And when I, when I read this, I, like, I don't know, does that inspire you? Like, I, I really do want my life to count I want it to go beyond me into the next generation. Dennis Rainey of Family Life today, you know what he suggests? He suggests that parents pray what is known as the Jabez prayer out of 1 Chronicles 4.10 and intentionally find ways to influence their children. You know, you don't drift into greater righteousness. You intentionally move there. You don't drift into greater influence and godliness with your your kids. You have to intentionally do that. You don't accidentally become a positive influence. You accidentally always become a negative influence. You know what Dennis Rainey suggests? He says, we should pray over our children, the Jabez prayer. Oh, that you would bless me indeed. Lord, bless my kids indeed. Enlarge my territory. Enlarge my kids' territory. I pray that your hand would be with me, and I want your hand to be with my kids. And I pray that you'd keep me from sin, from evil, so that I don't cause any pain. And then God granted him his request. You know, um, I actually do pray that prayer over my kids every day. I do. Dennis Rainey suggests that we ask God to give our children a sense of purpose, direction, and mission. The challenge here is to leave your children a heritage, not just an inheritance. As someone once said, our children are messengers we send to a time we will not see. Jesus says, I want you to make sure that you steward your influence well. Secondly, his second warning was, first is don't don't cause people to sin. Second, be careful not to let sin in your life. Wow. I mean, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. That's pretty ugly, isn't it? Now, for those of you who are literalists in the room, Jesus is using a literary device. It is hyperbole or metaphor in an exaggerated form. He's saying, hey, how ridiculous would it be for you to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, and pluck out your eye? Oh, that is like crazy, right? Yeah, it's crazy. But I want to tell you, as crazy as that is, to allow sin a place in our lives 
and think that we are going to be okay is ridiculously crazy. You know, we don't like to say that I sinned. I, I, I challenge you. The next time you have a fight with your wife or you are harsh with your children, or if, use the word sin. You won't want to. Hey, listen, I'm really sorry for my mistake, right? Wouldn't we rather say that? Hey, I, 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 my bad, my bad. You know, it's my fault and I'm sorry. And we don't like the word sin because it carries sort of a moral weight. Actually, the definition of sin is, sin is a transgression of a divine law. Boy, that just brings that to a higher level, doesn't it? That means that, that we have offended a divine person, a God whose law we are, we are gonna be held accountable to. Uh, any act regarding a transgression against this God, it, it implies that we willfully and de- deliberately violated the, the law of God because we wanted to, and we'd much rather act like, oh, oh, sorry, my bad. Why am I so good at this? You figure that out. You are too. But to go to someone and say, you know, I sinned against you when I was saying unkind words or falsely accusing you or and I've, I've sinned against you and, and God, and that's why we're, we're not like we should be, and so I'm asking God to forgive me, and I'm asking you to forgive me. It wasn't just my bad. I didn't just make a mistake. I actually chose to do what I did, and I'm sorry. Wow. Wow. Humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness. You know, the, the, the other truth about sin in our lives is this, that you and I, we love to sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Did you know that we can't even overcome the sin in our life by working harder or trying to be better? Did you know that that's not possible? What we need is we need divine intervention, the grace of God, the gift of God. We, we are sinners who need a savior. And that's what Jesus came to be. And he told stories like the story of the prodigal son that willfully demanded his inheritance even while his father was still alive, went out, squandered all of his inheritance. The, 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 man, the boy is starving to death in a pig pen, and he realizes, oh my goodness, I, I would be better off to be a servant in my father's house because I'm starving in this place. And my father was at least a kind and generous master. I'd be better off to go back home but I know I can't go back home because I have so deeply wounded my father and sinned to the point where maybe I can just kind of sneak in and apply to be a servant in his house because that's what he deserved. But he goes back to the father. What does the father do? Jesus loves this story. He told, I love this story. And when the son was a far way off, 
stinky and emaciated with tattered old and dirty clothes trying to sneak back in to become a servant. The father sees him and goes running toward him and he embraces his son. And he says to his servants, bring a robe. Put some sandals on him. Here, son, put my ring on you. And we're going to throw a party because my son that was lost is now found. My son that was dead is now alive. You know what that is? That's the grace of God. It is the only hope you and I have. I can't make myself righteous. I need a Savior to rescue me and save me. And I need him every day, every minute, all the time. And I am transformed by a God who will love me that much. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 4 says, God who is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Do you hear that? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is what God does. And he tells his disciples, you got to understand, you're going to need my grace every day. And you've got to ruthlessly identify the sin that keeps coming at you. And you need to keep asking your Savior to save you from your sin. Now, you get saved one time in a relationship, but that relationship begins a continuous process of seeking God's help and grace and protection and forgiveness Serious. Third, this is a really interesting passage. Um, what it's talking about here is it's talking about an active surrender, an ongoing relationship. And I, I, I just want to uh, read, read the verse uh, 49 to 50, Mark 9, 49 to 50. For everyone will be seasoned with salt and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Okay, everyone will be seasoned with, with um, fire and every sacrifice seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if it's lost its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Okay, so wow, is that like a confusing verse or what? I try to do some study, a lot of discussion. What in the world? I'm salted with salt and I'm salted with fire. And what in the world does that mean? Okay, well, my favorite common uh, Terry on this was that there were offerings that were presented that needed to be seasoned with salt, like the grain offerings. They, they, they needed to be seasoned with salt, and then they were offered on the fire. Um, they were completely consumed. And you and I, we, we should offer our lives as living sacrifices, and we need to be seasoned with salt. I mean, that, that means that we need the ongoing transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Always. You're never going to be done needing God. Um, now, for us, this constant surrender is not what we want to do. Because I don't want to keep surrendering my life to God. I'd rather be God in my life. I'd rather be in charge, right? And, and Jesus is saying, but here, here's, the, here's the truth. Your best life will be when you learn to live in constant surrender to God for every circumstance that comes your way, asking for his help, and never stop asking. You know, when I was a schoolboy in the Philippines, I do remember this day that the very last Japanese soldier surrendered his sword to President Ferdinand Marcos. That was in March 10, 1974. We've got a photograph of this. I remember this coming out on the headlines of the paper. I mean, this guy was such a loyal soldier. No one convinced him to surrender. He wasn't... He, unless he heard from his, his officer, he, he would not believe that the war was older. And so for 30 years, this guy ignored the loudspeakers, the messages that were dropped, the leaflets, and, and he just refused to surrender. And, and over the years, uh, what he did was he kept raiding fields and gardens from local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 people in the 29 years. I mean, over a half a million dollars was spent to try to locate this guy. I mean, this was the one last Japanese soldier that couldn't be found and wouldn't surrender. 13,000 men were used to locate him. Finally, on March 10, 1974, 30 years, almost 30 years after the war, um, this, this soldier, Onada was his name, having heard from a commanding officer in the Japanese army, surrenders his sword to then-president Ferdinand Marcos. You know what President Marcos did? He received it. And then he returned it. And then he left and went back to Japan after being gone for so long. He wrote his memoirs, became kind of a local celebrity. Do you know when he became free? When he surrendered. The best decision of our lives is to surrender. Surrender to God. We're going to go through all kinds of experiences in life, and at every juncture, our best response is, wow, I've never never gone through this before. But God, I'm going to surrender today in this circumstance. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense to just surrender to someone who is wiser, more competent to run the show than you. It's a great idea to let God do his job. Let him be God and you don't be God. But when we surrender, 
That's when we're going to find peace. And we're going to ask God to lead us in every area. I mean, we're, we're going to need to surrender our mouths, how we speak. We're going to need to surrender our wallets. We're going to need to be generous when God says to be generous. We're going to be careful with our spending and hardworking. And I need to surrender my marriage to God. I do. I don't know if you're a husband here like me, but I can give testimony to how I have I have tried to be in charge and I, I've messed things up pretty bad from time to time. And we're going to have to su- surrender our children, our families, our sexuality, our future, our whole life. I mean, the greatest thing a human being could do would be to surrender completely himself into the hand of a God who is wise and powerful and has our best at heart and can make it happen. You know, maybe we'd end today by just praying a prayer, all of us. It would sound like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for paying the price of my rescue. God, thank you for being willing to come into my broken messed up life and lead me and rescue me and make me into something good and honorable and worthwhile because unless you come in and help me I don't know how to do it thank you God because you said that when we lose our life that's when we will find it thank you God because you, you have invited us to come to you So, it's game day. And this was the locker room speech. And it is a message for us as well today. Can I invite you to stand as we close?